you know, I just don't feel like that. It just, it doesn't feel like the right answer. Like, it gives me kind of a funny feeling. Like, again, follow those dollar bills. Like, mm. who is saying that and why and who's benefiting from that? Because um, I just don't feel like that's the right answer. I think that more sustainable, small-scale farms raising food well is the answer. I don't think telling people what they can or cannot eat is the right answer. I think it's just going to create more division. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. When I got to this week's guest's farm, I felt like I had stepped back in time. And you will too, as we chat and you hear about how she's farming. It's interesting, the insights that she shares, though, on the positives of being able to do that, the struggles, but also the things that stand in her way to be able to do more of this kind of ethically raised meat that she specializes in, in a small farm, in the trees, very hands-on, very old-fashioned. Lulu Redder is her name. Her farm is uh, Feral Woman Farm. You're really going to enjoy hearing from her and uh, maybe a little bit frustrated like I was hearing about some of even the regulations that make it difficult to do more of this kind of farming that we should all be embracing. It's in Duval, Washington, Feral Woman Farm. Her name again is Lulu Redder. She has an incredible story of how she got there and why she's doing what she's doing I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm glad you're here joining me on my journey all over Washington State to get to know the real people behind our food. Our sponsors are Dairy Farmers of Washington. Uh, wadairy.org is their website. You can check them out there as well as a virtual farm tour as they inspire the desire for local dairy I worked with those folks for a long time, and they not only talk the talk, they walk the walk. They mean it, and they're, they're doing great things uh, in the world of, of dairy and, and the, the milk products that we all love and enjoy uh, so much. Also, Mana Insurance Group, based here where I grew up, the guy who started the insurance group is a classmate of mine. I've known him since we were both young kids great guy and he's doing really cool stuff with insurance that makes it more about planning ahead and and personalized solutions rather than just picking up the pieces when things go wrong mana insurance group check them out online they have locations here in washington as well as arizona and in california williams is supporting the podcast with a community grant as they help power your clean energy future. And also thank you to uh, the uh, Washington Red Raspberry Commission uh, sponsoring the podcast as well. Uh, I've been around those folks for a long time because my dad has been a longtime um, board member and someone involved in the Washington Red Raspberry Commission as well as a red raspberry grower. So I appreciate them supporting what we're doing here on the Real Food, Real People podcast as well. Now, without further ado, let's go on and uh, go to Duval, Washington, where we hear from Lulu Redder at Feral Woman Farm. When did you become a farmer? Hmm. Like, when, when would you, what was the point when you would consider yourself a farmer? I think it, it's probably, I, I started doing a, a raw goat milk dairy internship when I was 19 mm. and I think I'd been doing it for a couple months 
And I remember just going out and sitting in the pasture one day and I was just surrounded by all the goats and the, you know, it was middle of the summer and the grass was all long and I was just sitting in the sunshine and I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I really don't want to do anything else. <laughs> and it's been that way ever since? Like, yeah, you were, you were hooked. I was hooked. I was like, and it was just always one foot in farming. You know, I had all these other jobs. I was working as a waitress. I would work in grocery stores. I had uh, food service jobs, things like that. But I just always was always either side hustling, doing some sort of farm gig or had a yeah. community garden plot or always just doing something that had to do with farming or had a farm job or, you know, I just couldn't stop. <laughs> so why? Why? What was it about farming that? that hooked you? Um, something about just, I think being out in nature and being like part of the cycles of nature and the seasons and being out in the elements and just feeling and seeing everything that's happening around you. And, and with agriculture, the way, you know, as a farmer, your practices affect the land around you is really exciting to me. I like to see that what I'm doing is having a positive effect on the spaces around me. I like to yeah. see, you know, the evasive plants getting eaten up by the goats. And I like to see the grass come back greener and lusher after moving my animals over it. And, um, you know, I like to be out in the rain and I like to lift heavy things. I just like to feel like I'm living and I feel like I'm living when I'm farming. A lot of people are probably jealous of the kind of life that you're able to live, but it wasn't always that way, right? Like you had to make this happen. Oh, even every day still now, I have to fight to be able to live like this and do what I love. And, and you know, that's what I was saying earlier. I have to work two jobs, you know. I'm still not quite at that point where I can make a full-time living doing this, but I do it because I love it and I don't want to do anything else. Um, and so hopefully one day, very soon, this is going to be my full-time thing. So that's what you're working toward. Exactly. Full-time farmer. Yeah. Start to finish. I want it to be everything to be born and butchered on my farm. And that's why I'm doing the butcher apprenticeship right now. I want to be able to be start to finish. Okay. So describe your farm, Feral Woman Farms, feral right? Feral Woman Farms. For, well, first you got to explain <laughs> the name. Well, I suppose the whole Feral Woman thing sort of came for my... Uh, you know, my love for just being outside and being kind of like half wild, you know, in a way yeah. and half off the grid and um, <laughs> just loving that lifestyle. And, you know, I just felt like that described me pretty perfectly. And <laughs> I feel like, you know, definitely all my animals and everything are part of the farm. But, you know, as a farmer, I'm the heart of it. So it was important to kind of describe that in my name. So what is Feral Woman Farm? What, what do you do? So Feral Woman Farm, I am a pasture-based um livestock-based farm. So I produce pork, lamb, chicken, and rabbit on a pasture-based system. Um, all my animals are grazed um, seasonally um, when it's not raining. Um, like So probably about April through October, everything is out on pasture. And I move the pastures every 5 to 14 days, depending on how fast the grass is growing. Um, so it's this rotational grazing that we're hearing more and more about even like in mainstream coverage sometimes these days. Exactly. And you know, I'm glad it's getting more coverage because I feel like it's a really beneficial system for the land. Um, you know, and, and it creates these farms that are more sustainable um, for our communities as well. You know, they, you're able to fit these small pasture-based farms and spaces that, you know, like this, this space that I'm in here, it's not, you know, it's a bit 
silvopasture. You know, there's there's a lot of trees and I'm working within kind of weird shaped spaces. And by using the electric net fencing, I can move those spaces around into places maybe other big farmers couldn't get their permanent fencing. Um, and so, you know, I feel like I'm kind of able to be part of a smaller community a little a little more than I would if I was like some big conglomerate farmer or something where I kind of right. just had a giant plot of land. Well, and, and that's something that you can do with animals. I mean, large or small animals can get in and around trees and rougher kind of property or whatever, graze that land, mm-hmm. actually add nutrients, yeah. all these things like you're doing here versus crop farming, which isn't necessarily as easy to do that way. No, but you know, I'm I'm a nomadic rotational grazing farmer, so it's not to say a vegetable farmer couldn't come in after me and grow really great vegetables yeah. on these spaces we fertilize. So Totally. Yeah. Have you done any veggies? I have. Actually, one of my very first little farm enterprises was uh, a market garden. I grew vegetables and raised beds for um, local farmers markets back when I was just a little baby farmer and um I really enjoyed that, but I really didn't enjoy weeding. And so I quickly moved away from that and yeah. onto livestock. Right. <laughs> so talk about your different animals. You said pork, Lamb, chicken. chicken, and I do some rabbit as well. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so I raise, um, I try to raise as much heritage breed pork as I can. So I do Berkshire, Berkshire crosses um, for their exceptional um, meat quality and fat marbling. I just think they're fanta- fantastically delicious. Um, and I try to raise them in woodlot spaces as much as possible because I feel like that's the closest thing to their natural environment where they would live in the wild. Um, and they love to root for grubs and bugs and those sorts of spaces. And I feel like they're getting a more varied diet that way. Mm-hmm. Um, this year I'm going to be offering a hazelnut finished option on my pork, which is going to be really interesting and delicious. Um, what does that mean, hazelnut finished? <laughs> so that means for about the last three to four weeks of their life, they're going to have um, hazelnuts added to their diet. Mm. Um, and what that does is some of those flavors get absorbed into the fat in their body. And you will actually be able to taste a slightly nutty, hazelnutty flavor in the meat. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Yum. <laughs> And so on top of pork, I do uh, a, sn- a small number of lamb shares every year. So um, I offer those by half and whole to my customers um, by reservation. And they are pasture raised. So those lambs are born here on the farm and then moved out to pasture and graze until they're ready to be harvested. Um, and I do pastured chicken. Um, I do Cornish cross uh, broiler birds and I raise them and a graduated system of moving them out into various chicken tractors um, to finish out their lives on pasture where they can all see grass and bugs and get lots of fresh air. And I think it has a huge effect on the meat quality. The birds that I produce are juicy and succulent and just they fall off the bone. They are so good. Mm. (laughs) You can really taste, I think you can really taste it when the animals have lived a good life. Oh, this happens almost every episode where I get hungry just partway in. <laughs> I should have killing me. Huh? <laughs> no, that's all good because then I, I need to talk and I'd have my mouth full. I'm sure. Oh, that sounds incredible. And you're saying a lot of the difference in your end product has to do with what you're doing here on this land. Exactly, and that's why I like 
doing this on a smaller scale because I feel like I can focus on quality over quantity and really produce something that's a cut above the rest and worth what I have to ask my customers to pay for it in order for me to make a living doing it. You were saying when when we were just setting up here, you were saying you had been doing eggs and mm-hmm. anything else too that you aren't doing or why, why, did, why are you moving away from doing eggs? Well, you know, I suppose I, you know, kind of as I've been learning and growing as a farmer, I've tried lots of different things, um, you know, like vegetables I tried and decided, okay, I really don't want to grow those, just <laughs> yeah. all those. But, um, you know, and so I had a bunch of laying hens that I was, I was selling eggs um, to my customers and, um, and keeping some for myself as well. And I just kind of decided... I've really honed in on pastured meat birds and pork um, as my my main focus for my farm. And so I decided that, um, you know, in order to give me a little bit more time and space and energy to focus on those things, I was going to cut laying hens out of my production this year. And, you know, hopefully um, as I move into bigger spaces and I'm able to kind of use more pasture land, I'll be able to add those back in in the future. But I think for now, I really just want to focus on on the things I'm super passionate about. Meat. Mm-hmm. It's what you do. It's what I do. <laughs> so you grow it really well. You have such a cool place here. What's the next step? I mean, you were talking about you're, you're doing like a internship on butchery right now. Yeah. So I've been working in butcher shops um, for a few years now. I worked in some butcher shops on the East Coast before I moved back out here to Washington. Um, but when I moved back out here, I moved back out here with full intention of becoming a farmer again and finding farmland and doing this. And so that's what I did. And pretty soon I had animals that needed to be butchered. And so I was shopping around for a butcher and I, I had moved out here and kind of started looking for butcher jobs because I knew I wanted to try to keep doing that if I could, but I was having a hard time finding local butchers, you know, they're few and far between out here. Um, you know, small craft butcher shops and butchers are kind of a dying breed and, and it's a, it's a trade, you know, it's something that you need to learn from somebody who's yeah. been doing it. Why, why is that? Why are they a dying breed? You know, it's just, I think a lot of butchers kind of see their skill set as, and maybe their recipes and their way of doing things as a proprietary thing. You know, it's often something that's been passed down in the family or from their mentor to them. And, um, you know, so I think a lot of that stuff you know, when you go to ask somebody if you can learn from them, you know, I think they're going to look at you and, and ask, like, you know, is this person worth investing in to teach? Are, what are they going to go off and do with this, right. you know, all this skill that I'm going to teach them all the time and effort I'm going to put into to training them? Um, and, you know, as there are, as the, you know, the older butchers, the guys that, you know, knew how to do everything by hand and lift things using leverage and, you know, as all these guys are aging out and, and no longer you know, practicing their trade, they're retiring, um, you know, we're losing that. And so there are fewer and fewer people to teach the next generation. Um, and so we're just losing those skills, you know, and, and I, as a farmer, it was really important to me to be able to be start to finish. I wanted to, if not practice it, know how to do everything. Um, and so, I just went out and and I tried to learn and I found a butcher who was very supportive of me being a woman in a very male dominated industry. Um, And um, he was willing to take me on and teach me and have me work for him. And so for the past about a year and a half, it's a two year apprenticeship. I've been working with him and learning as much as he's willing to teach me. 
about this trade and and I'm super grateful for that and I feel like I'm a better farmer for learning all of this and um, I'm just really excited for the future because I want to be able to pass this on to other butchers Um, I especially want to make it more inclusive for women and and I really you know I'm looking forward to the next step it's weird the different parts of our food system that are male dominated or female dominated focused on and sometimes you have to step back and say why yeah you know why why yeah why aren't there other perspectives yeah brought into doing this women you know people from different backgrounds where's it's I think it goes back to what you're saying like it's long time old school yeah lots of old school guys doing the old school way with an old school way of thinking which isn't necessarily a bad thing but you know we're learning and growing as a society you know and changing the way we do everything and you know I, I would hate to see you know, the missed opportunity of more people being able to learn and pass on this trade just for the fact that they're women or, you know, want to do it a little different or I think that would be unfortunate. Well, we've seen it here on the podcast for sure. And I just know it from being in the farming community, at least here in this state, women are taking over. I mean, this is, (laughs) there are so many more women getting involved in farming than ever before. And I think it's awesome. And I think there are, you know, women are bringing something that this formerly male dominated world maybe was lacking in different places, you know, a different vibe, a different perspective on some things that I think is really beneficial. Yeah, we all bring something to the table. We just got to meet in the middle and like combine our awesome ideas, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So what what happens after that i mean is, does this butcher that you're working with learning from like you're doing some of your own butchery now then mm-hmm. i would assume yeah and then he also butchers like is that all of your meat goes there kind of thing so yeah so most of my meat now moves through my mentor um you know and my hope and dream is in within the next year or two i can start building my own small custom cut and wrap butcher shop um i think i'm gonna stay away from retail initially because i really enjoy working with farmers directly and my customers directly and i love that relationship with custom butchery which is where you know your farmer is selling the animal directly to the customer the customer you know oftentimes can come visit the farm and see where it lived and 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 how it was raised and um you know then that customer is talking with their butcher about exactly what cuts of meat they would like it's a very custom involved process tailored to the customer and what they want um so i think it's a great opportunity also to educate your customer about your different cuts of meat and cool things they can do and cook um with it and um and i just i like that relationship i like I like talking with the people that are going to be eating the animals that I raise yeah. and, and building that appreciation. What's the next step after the meat's all butchered and ready to, to sell to people? You got to get it in front of people somehow. <laughs> exactly. And so that's where um, having a really good marketing skill set really <laughs> comes in handy. You know, you got to, especially on a small scale, you got to be willing to get out there and talk to people and do farmers markets and yeah. and network with your customers and other people in the community who might be interested in this sort of stuff. And so I do a lot of, um, on top of just selling my meats, I do workshops. So I do a lot of education 
kitchen. Um, I teach people how small how to raise and butcher small animals like chickens and rabbits, and and that gives me an opportunity to meet people and share what I know. And they get to go off and talk about how exciting that class was and how much they learned, and yeah. talk about my farm. And you know, I get a lot of my business through word of mouth, which is really cool. So is it possible to sell all the meat that you raise? I mean, so far I'm doing it. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I'm yeah. going to get to a point where I'm going to need some help. And, you know, hopefully I can bring in a small team of folks that are going to want to help me market these these products that I'm producing. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, you know, with growth comes, you know, a reliance on the people around you. And I need a cool team of people that are going to be there, support me and, and help me grow. But awesome to hear that you're selling everything that you're growing so far. I mean, that's... That tells you something right there. Like yeah. There is a demand for what you're producing. Exactly, yeah. What what kind of people do you sell to? Since you, you as a farmer, connect a lot more closely with the people who consume your food probably than most farmers do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my customer base are really folks that that care about where and how their food was raised. They want to know that it was raised well, um, you know, by somebody who really cares about the welfare and, um, you know, the quality of the the animals that they're producing. Um, And, you know, I I think I get a lot of folks, too, that really just are excited to see what I'm doing and want to support that um, and want to see me succeed and um and be able to continue growing and making a living doing this and so i i'm extremely grateful for all the customers that i have i just feel like they're this fantastic group of people that really care um you know care to see me continue doing this and i appreciate that back to the butchery stuff (laughs) and the old school like you know tough to to bring new people in and you just mentioned you know retail versus custom Mm -hmm. Some of that has to do with the rules and regs. Like you can't just butcher your animal and sell me like four pork chops that I want to bring home for supper, right? Exactly. And it's unfortunate because I think I, I do have a lot of customers that come to me and ask like, hey, I do just want four pork chops or a pork shoulder. Can I buy that from you? I'm like, unfortunately, no, because the way the regulations are, mm. um, unless I have those animals processed USDA, I can't sell you retail cuts. Um, and so, yes, I think I would, it would benefit me as a business and a farmer very much if I could sell cuts, um, with less expense and regulation involved in doing it. Um, as of right now, all of my meat is sold. Technically it's all sold by the share of the live animal. So a half or a whole animal and the customer buys it live. We have a reservation agreement. Um, and then technically the customer is contracting the butcher to process that animal and cut it custom for them. So it's kind of two different services um, yeah. that produce one end result, which is a big freezer bag full of meat. Right. Um, so. But that's the way around these regs mm-hmm. to be able to say, here, I'm growing animals. You want to buy the meat. So then they actually are buying a portion of that animal and having it butchered themselves, which is allowed because then it's private versus Exactly. Technically, that is your personal animal, live animal being processed for your personal consumption. And that's how that workaround works. See, that's just crazy to me that that has to even be a thing. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much food that's grown. As we've seen in the past year, like it's important to more and more people to get their meat close to home from, yes, a place that is uh, 
you know, sustainable and employs all the practices that you do, but even is just nearby and something you can rely on. When we saw empty shelves last year, the first time in most any living American's lifetime. Yeah. It's like, I know that I can get meat because my neighbor grows animals, but yeah, it's crazy <laughs> to me still that, well, but no, you can't just go buy some steaks. Yeah. And it really limits my market. You know, there's a lot of folks living in townhouses that can't, you know, they just don't have the space to put a big chest freezer or something. You know, right. they can't fit a whole or half an animal in their freezer. And so, yeah, to be able to buy a cut of meat would be such a benefit to them to be able to purchase locally like that. What's the reason for that? Why, why can't people do that? What's standing in the way? How can we get it to change? You got, yeah, you got to follow those big dollar bills and see where they lead. And, and that is probably why the regulations are the way they are. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I would love to see some changes to the way meat processing is regulated you know, it is federal right now, and, and I perhaps think that having it state regulated might, you know, yeah. allow communities to, um, you know, make some more choices for themselves that suit them and the way they operate versus, you know, trying to say this is how the whole country can do it um, in a very broad manner. And, um, you know, I think loosening up those regulations a little bit more to allow small farmers to, you know, and it doesn't even have to be you can, you know, any farmer can process it on their farm and just sell it just like that. But even just to allow, you know, state uh, state inspected custom meat shops to be able to sell those cuts um, or to be able to, yeah, to, to allow the farmers to sell those custom shop process cuts at retail on their farm or at farmer's markets, I think would be, you know, a huge step in the right direction just to see smaller far- farms yeah. and communities thrive. Well, because one of the reasons probably that would be given would be that it's, it's for food safety. USDA has to inspect, make yeah. sure this food is safe. But what you're talking about is kind of a middle ground because mm-hmm. I think most people would agree we shouldn't. Well, there may be some who would want to just go to Wild West and, you know, you butcher an animal <laughs> and sell it. But most people would agree there's some need for, you know, inspections and safety and make Absolutely. sure that you That's have to be able important. to trust that the food that you buy is safe yeah. first and foremost. But you're saying that's still possible without being yeah. something that squelches the, the local small farmer. Well, why not, you know, offer some sort of training course? It could even be a, you know, a federal course offered by the state for custom butchers to learn how to inspect to USDA standards the meat that comes into their shops. Like, how easy would that be? Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're a construction worker, you can get certified to operate big machinery through your union. Why not be able to, you know, certify meat USDA or something like that? Totally. And how easy? Yeah, that would be so easy. Um. And I think that would be a really quick fix for that problem. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it could make a big change in our regional food system, I think. Definitely. So environmental sustainability is a big de- deal to you with all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very important to me that um, what I'm doing on the spaces that I'm working with benefits those spaces. I... It's really important to me that I leave things better than, you know, I came to them. Yeah. Um, 
And so I'm very conscious of my grazing. You know, I keep an eye on that grass and how it's growing, and I make sure I move it before it gets grazed down too far. You know, if I feel like I have two animals in a, too many animals in a space, I'm going to, you know, stock them less heavy than I was before. Um, you know, and, and in some ways that's limiting. I can only do so much with mm-hmm. the small amounts of space that I have to work with. Um, but I would rather work that way than work in a way that is going to be detrimental to the spaces I work with. What about uh, at a bigger level, mm-hmm. you know, beyond just this piece of property, which you're trying your best to, to steward, but, yeah. you know, these larger societal, like, sustainability issues, how much does that play into your mindset with what you're trying to accomplish here? Oh, gosh. I mean, I can only worry about so many things, yeah. right? But, yeah, definitely, you know, it's something in the back of my mind. And on a larger scale, you know, I... I would like to see more people being able to work with the kind of these silver pasture spaces, you know, um, work with more natural spaces rather than having to, you know, flatten, you know, forests and things out to, yeah. to graze their livestock. And I think you can work with spaces like this and produce quite a bit. Um, but, you know, I also realize that there are lots of different ways of farming and I try not to knock one farmer's way of doing things, you know, just because I do something different. Right. I think we all we all are doing our very best. Yeah. One of those big picture things that I'm thinking about is you're obviously with your rotational grazing and a variety of your practices, you're very focused on soil health, mm-hmm. which as I mentioned all the time on this podcast and elsewhere has become kind of a passion of mine to learn more about that whole world. It's fascinating to yeah. me. That That's a big deal. And that's, I think, one of the things that you're referring to when you say leave a place better than you found it is you're trying to build the health of the soil on this property. Exactly. I'm full service. I mow, I fertilize, you know, (laughs) I mean, I'm in here and you know, I am paying attention to, you know, how much manure these animals are depositing on each rotation and, and, um, and that it's being applied evenly. And I want to, you know, I'm feeding nutrients into these animals. You know, they are getting supplemental grain or hay that I'm bringing in from off farm. And so that's, um, you know, value that I'm putting into the land, you know, that money I'm investing in that feed, it's coming out the other end of those animals and it's getting left behind, you know, and it's building the fertility of the land. And, and you can see, you know, the, the life in the soil is growing and changing over time when you do that. And, you know, you see more bugs and worms and, um, it's cool. And I mean, how much carbon are you sequestering, sequestering by, by doing that? That too. I mean, that's something that wasn't really recognized or talked about too much until pretty recently. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and you look at, you know, spaces like the Great Plains where the buffalo used to roam and, you know, and they would travel over the land and they'd trample some of it down and they'd deposit their manure and they'd move on. And, you know, look at how lush and beautiful those spaces were and, and um you know, I'm just trying to do something similar on a more controlled scale. Yeah. What about then this whole meat versus non-meat debate? Oh. <laughs> you know, because that th- that's what some people say is the answer to dealing with our carbon issues, climate mm-hmm. change issues. But you're coming at it from a totally different angle. Yeah. How do you see that? 
Well, I mean, as a butcher, it's a little <laughs> it's a little scary to hear people saying they want to regulate, you know, meat production and and say no to livestock production for meat and um, you know, I just don't feel like that. It just, it doesn't feel like the right answer. Like it gives me kind of a funny feeling. Like, again, follow those dollar bills. Like mm. who is saying that and why, and who's benefiting from that? Because, um, I just don't feel like that's the right answer. I think that more sustainable, small scale farms raising food well is the answer. I don't think telling people what they can or cannot eat is the right answer. I think it's just going to create more division. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. Very well said because I, I see that already all over, you know, people are all caught up in labels and you know what people eat and food shaming even. And like, there's a, there's a whole other world that you may not even be aware of as far as what really happens with farming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that's what scares me most about the world right now is just the misinformation and people not really understanding what really goes on. I mean, in a lot of different aspects of society, but, you know, farming, especially in food production, you know, I think a lot of people are just very, you know, they've, they've, they've lived their lives in a way that allows them to be very disconnected from how their food is produced. And, you know, that's not a bad thing, but, you know, the effects of that are that you, you can't really appreciate how good food is raised or you don't really know the difference between like really good pasture raised meat versus, you know, something that wasn't raised in a sustainable system. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think educating people is really important. You know, I, I welcome all the questions people can throw at me when customers come to me and they're interested in buying meat, I will field any question they have because, and give them an honest, transparent answer, because I think it is so important that they know, um, and appreciate how, you know, good food is raised. I think that's just going to make farming more sustainable as a career path for the next generation of farmers. For that person who's totally disconnected with food and wants to know more about it, what's the top thing, the one thing that you would share with them that you feel people should know that tend not, they tend not to know if they're disconnected with, with farming and, and where their food comes from? Hmm. Gosh, that's a hard one. I mean, there are so many things. I think, um, you know, I think there's just a lot of a misconception about animals being raised for food being a cruel thing. Um, you know, and, and something my mentor always says that I, I like to kind of steal from him now is, you know, the animals only have, should only have one bad day, you know, and that's the day that they're butchered. But the rest of their lives should be you know, enjoyable, where they eat well, live well, you know, in an environment that's, you know, conducive to good health and their happiness. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at livestock production and say, oh, these animals are kept in muddy pens or, or, you know, um, they're just being raised and forced to be bred and, and then they're, you know, killed. And it just, it makes it all sound very horrific and cruel and it really and and in a good farming system it's not you know and they're good farmers and they're bad farmers but you know farms are places where there's mud and poop and things are born and they die and that's just life you know and and i think you know there's a disconnect from nature and those elements and and the way life is and um you know i think 
that's probably something that I would like to see change. Yeah, you know? for sure. If you think about that, yeah, wow. It it is getting back to nature, you know. Yeah, we're, cycles we're, of life and death, and and. Yeah, I was born. I'm gonna die. I'm probably going to have more than one bad day before I die, honestly. <laughs> you know, with with the way human life goes, you know, a lot of people, it, it's not easy. That's not necessarily the same for animals. Mm-hmm. Like you're describing, if they're farmed well, like you do. Mm-hmm. I'd never thought about it quite that way as compared to my even my own life. Yeah, people a lot do of get hung I up on like... that, like, how can you you kill animals and eat them? <laughs> These animals probably live better than I do half the time, honestly. They don't have yeah. to worry about paying the bills <laughs> or when their next meal is coming, you know? Right? Like, <laughs> they've got it good. <laughs> I hope I come back as a goat on a farm. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like stepping back in time on on your farm here. And you're like living off grid and the whole bit. Like, yeah. <laughs> talk, talk about how that came to be, what that's like, like just really being connected to the land. Well, I think it just started with a love for being outdoors and in nature. And then, you know, as I kind of grew and, and kind of moved out and started doing my own thing, it was like, you know, how am I going to afford to follow this passion? I was like, you know, I can't afford a fancy apartment in town and continue to rent land and do this. Like, I have to be able to live where I farm. I want to live where I farm. I want to be there when animals are having their babies. And I want to, you know, be able to to be involved the minute I need to be. Um, and so, you know, that turned into, okay, well, I have to have some sort of living situation where, I can move my home around wherever I'm going to farm. I, I can't also can't afford land yet of my own. And so I lease, um, you know, and that doesn't always last forever. And so, you know, that turned into, oh, these little tiny house things look pretty cool. Like maybe I'll build one of those. And, you know, I actually, I built like two or three of them before at different stages of completion before I finally built the one I'm living in now. And, um, and it was just like, I was working three jobs and I just decided I need to be a farmer. I like either need to go hard or go home and do this. And so, I worked three jobs. I went to Home Depot every time I had a paycheck. I built this tiny house. I I got three pigs that were going to be the start of my farm. And I was like, all right. And at the time, I was in New York in my mom's driveway building my house in the suburbs. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I really just don't want to live here in New York. You know, I don't like the hustle and bustle. Let's go, go, go. Everybody only cares about money. I was like, I miss Washington. I had, I had started farming out here. Um, and moved back and moved around a little bit, honestly. And, and I was like, I need to, I need to be back out here. This is where my community is. This is where the people that are like me are. And so I packed up my three pigs in the back of my truck. I packed up my livestock dog. I put the house on my hitch. I had driven that trailer two times. I actually had only driven a trailer two times before I drove it across the country. <laughs> I took a first spin on the highway for two exits and I was like, all right, I'm out of here. It's ride or die. We're going. I'm, I'm doing this like all in. And I did. I just, I, I got on the highway. I drove from Connecticut to Washington. I almost died on the way, actually. No, seriously. Oh You'll see if you look on the side of my house, there's a little scrape mark. I actually flipped it. I went over some ice on a pass in Wyoming 
and it fishtail and it flipped on its side. Scary. I blocked two lanes of traffic on the 90. And if that house hadn't been tethered to my truck, I probably wouldn't have went on over, over an overpass and died. So I had the thing wow. flipped back up. I continued my trip out here and I had a lined up a job um, up on the islands to go work on a farm for a little bit to get a start. Found a place down here while I was working up there, and I moved down here and was just like, that's it, I'm, I'm farming. I just started doing my own thing again and built my little business. And anyway. So where, where did you, <laughs> you grew up out here and then moved back east? My mom's side of the family all lives down out by Aberdeen. Okay. Um, and so we used to come out here every summer, and I just fell in love with, like, all the big ferns and pine trees and, mm. and how beautiful it was. And, and so when I got out of high school... Um, my mom was my mom and my sister were living in India in the time, mm. um, and so my student visa was up. So I came out here and started working on farms. I got jobs woofing, um, interning on different farms. Um, I tried to get into the sustainable agriculture program at Evergreen State for a little while, mm. but then I realized I don't really need to go to college to be a farmer. I can just keep mm. working on farms and learn everything, and yeah. and I did, and um, I think that worked out really well for me. So, yeah, so I had I had kind of fallen in love with this area and came back out here and did a little stint up in Canada for a bit. And then when my mom finally moved back from India, I went over there and helped her kind of get the house back together and spend some time with her. And then, yeah, I just decided the East Coast wasn't for me and I needed to be back here. I just, my heart was here. My heart was always yeah. here. And I've always, in between all my travels, I'd always come back here. So the vibe is pretty different between there and here. I think so. There's actually a very vibrant farming community out there. It's very cool. Um, yeah, but just a, a different feel, like a different type of people out there. It's just, it just wasn't me. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. It just wasn't me. And so you did it. Yeah. <laughs> even though, even though you said you still have to work other jobs too. So what, what are you doing in addition to farming? Well, luckily right now I'm just able to continue kind of learning and growing, um, you know, kind of working towards a, a cooler diversified farm business in the future. And so right now I'm working to um, two different butcher jobs mm. um, at two different places. I'm working for my mentor who's teaching me in my apprenticeship, and then I'm also working for a small local butcher shop in Fall City um, out of a grocery store there. Awesome. Yeah. That, so. it, that your other jobs can be so closely related to what you're hoping to do full-time eventually. Lucky? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because some people have to you know work at Walmart or whatever just to pay the bills mm -hmm. and then do – but this is all – coming together so closely for you that's just so important to me i just feel like life is so short and you just never know what's gonna happen and like i don't want to live like i don't want to wake up every day saying i hate my job and i don't want to go to work and i just want everything i do to be at least pointing me in the direction of where i want to go and yeah. um that's really important to me what's your dream how <laughs> how big do you want to get how extensive diverse whatever measure like where, where do you want to go with this well, I don't want to get too big. Um, yeah. You know, I like to keep it, like I said, quality over quantity. Um, you know, I kind of see like maybe 25 acres being a really good size for me. It's not a lot. Um, but, you know, it's enough that I can grow enough to support myself doing what I do. And um, my big goal is within the next couple years, I want to be operating in a space where I can start my own custom um, cut and wrap butcher shop. I want to be working with local farmers and local customers who want 
to buy hyperlocal food from farmers that, you know, they can go visit their farms if they want to. Um, and so I'm kind of right now, I'm dialing in on some business plans. I'm putting in some proposals to some really cool spaces where hopefully I can kind of start fleshing some of this stuff out. Um, and I'm kind of starting to poke around for like investors or partners or people who want to support me and work with me to help me get this stuff off the ground. I think I'm going to try to get a Kickstarter or something like that going within the next couple of weeks. And... Um, yeah, so I really want to create a start-to-finish farm where things are born and raised and processed on farm. I want to offer educational opportunities to people. I want to teach people some basic butchery classes um, and husbandry classes. I love getting children involved in agriculture. Um, yep. So right now, kind of one of my little side farm hustles is I do a mobile petting zoo where I go to people's private events and spaces and I bring my little cute tiny animals and they get to play with them for an hour or two and I get yeah. to talk to them about, you know, pigs and chickens and goats and um and so I really love, like, exposing the next generation to that, getting them excited about it. Um, and so I really want to incorporate that into the farm space that I'm hoping to occupy soon. And, um, yeah, I just want it to be immersive. I want it to be interactive. I want people to be involved in their food, and that's really where I'm hoping to go. It's crazy that that business side always sneaks in there. Yeah. As you're explaining, like, <laughs> finances and plans and investors and it doesn't yeah. matter how small or big you are you have to think about that stuff even though it's usually not what most farmers want to do yeah. yeah you have to absolutely yeah. even though i think some people have a perception that farmers you know just grow food and it's like well you have to kind of make money at it too to survive mm -hmm. you have to have a very varied skill set i think to be a farmer you know you have to know how to build things and fix things and keep yep. animals alive you have to be an animal nutritionist yep. and, and know all the regulation around what you're doing and and a marketer and yeah you have to be everything you know unless <laughs> you can afford a whole team of people to help you do all those things you yep. have to know how to do them yourself so it's very engaging and challenging and I never feel like there's a dull moment and I love that yeah awesome. well thank you for sharing your story with us I'm pumped to watch as you do all of this I, I'm going to be following a lot feralwomanfarm.com <laughs> Com? Feralwomanfarm.com. Okay. I'm also on Got Facebook right. and Instagram with lots of cute animal pictures. This Feral Woman Farm on Facebook and Instagram as mm -hmm. well. Just, okay. Yep. Awesome. And, you know, I'll be watching this campaign as you look to do more and more. Yep. And I think we'll have to check back in somewhere down the road with a podcast and, and awesome. <laughs> see what you've learned and how you've grown and, and where things go from here. Thank you. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food.